You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. Dr. George will be covering chapter 20, verse 17, through chapter 22, verse 29, which include the following three topics. The shepherd's exhortation to his sons. Second, the spirit tells the apostle he must suffer. And third, Paul in Jerusalem. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George covering the Shepherd's Exhortation to His Sons. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are coming into the end of Paul's third missionary journey as we begin this lesson. And he is now heading back toward Jerusalem. And he has been in what is Greece, Achaia and Macedonia, for a period of time. And because there is a plot to kill him aboard the ship he is about to take home, he changes his mind and he travels by land up around the Aegean Sea, coming back down on the western side of Asia Minor. He wants to speak to the elders of Ephesus before he returns to Syria and to Palestine. But he makes a decision not to go into Ephesus, probably in part because it will slow him down and he needs to keep moving if he is going to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So what he does is he goes into the city of Miletus, a city that is not far from the city of Ephesus, and he calls all of the elders to him. St. Luke writes then in verse 17, from Miletus he sent for the elders of the church of Ephesus. Now we recall in the last lesson that St. Luke had told us Paul in his long time in Ephesus had managed to spread the gospel, to proclaim the gospel in that whole area of Asia. He is not indicating the entirety of Asia Minor, but the western part of Asia Minor. And from the church of Ephesus, which was central to that area, there were other cities where Paul and his co-workers were sent to proclaim the gospel. And it is these cities surrounding in the proximity of Ephesus that we hear about at the beginning of the book of Revelation when the Lord speaks to John and he says to tell the church in Ephesus. And he mentions, of course, Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. These would have been the churches that were being founded at this time when Paul 
was there in Ephesus. What we have to keep in mind is that Paul, just like the other apostles, as they traveled and proclaimed the gospel and gathered disciples to the Lord, they were discerning the call of co-workers that they themselves ordained to share in the power of the priesthood. Now, as we're going to discuss in this first question, there was then an order of the priesthood of Jesus Christ being established from the first days of the church. And this order had in it three degrees. We've mentioned this in other lessons. The fullness of the priesthood is exercised by the apostles. It has been this way from the beginning of the church. It remains so to the present day. And the priests that they ordain become co-workers. The priests in the church do not have the fullness of the priesthood. When they work in their ministry, they depend completely upon and work wholly in communion with the bishops under whom they serve. Now, the present-day bishops are the successors to the apostles. And for this reason, it is through the laying on of their hands that the sacrament of ordination or holy orders is ministered. And so, as we enter this first section, this first question, it is worth taking our time to remind ourselves of these certain basic truths regarding the order of the priesthood if we wish to understand what was taking place through Paul's discourse, his exhortation to all of the elders of Ephesus and perhaps the surrounding churches that he had gathered to himself to give this farewell discourse before going back to Jerusalem. We begin by reminding ourselves that the church is an institution both human and divine. It's part of the mystery of God's plan. It's part of the profound mystery that His church, the kingdom of God, is established in the world so that the church is, on the one hand, the visible society of God, of God's people, and it is also the spiritual community of God's people. It is the earthly church, but the church endowed with heavenly realities. The church is a social structure with hierarchical organs, but at the very same time, it is the mystical body of Jesus Christ. So this mystery is in the one body, the one reality of the church. The priesthood, the order of the priesthood, was established with these different degrees from the beginning. We recall when we read chapter 6 of Acts of the Apostles that we already had this degree of diaconate, of service, of helpers to the bishops and to the priests of the church. And we have also in the New Testament the elders of the church. The Greek word that's used in the New Testament is presbyteros, what we call now the presbyterate. So when we speak of the three degrees of the order of the priesthood, we are talking of the episcopate, the bishops, the successors to the apostles, the presbyterate, the elders, what's referred to as the elders, and they are the priests who are the co-workers of the bishops, and the deacons, the diaconate of the church. 
Sometimes people wonder, sometimes non-Catholic Christians ask, how is it that the church comes up with this order of priests? Where did she get this? She just developed this on her own in those early centuries of the church? It's scriptural. This is already happening in the very first days of the church, and it's recorded in the New Testament itself. And so we have then what the church calls order. The church, when she, when she describes in her doctrines the mysteries of our faith, she uses language, she has to develop language over the centuries to teach these mysteries and to teach them in such a way so that they are intelligible to the people to whom she speaks. So, in every age of the church, this was true in the first century, the church would take to herself the language of the day and whatever was true and usable in that language, she would retain and she would qualify and adapt and tailor to herself, to her own mysteries, and then use those words in her doctrines. So we have a good example in this first question, and it's when we speak of holy orders or the order of the priesthood. Now, when we speak of holy orders, holy orders is the sacrament instituted by Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, at the same time he institutes the sacrament of the Eucharist, the sacrament through which the mission of the Lord that Christ entrusted to his apostles is carried out in the church until the end of time, the sacrament of holy orders. In Roman antiquity, the word order, ordo, was already in common use, and it referred to, generally speaking, a governing body, a civil body, a gathering, an assembly of people who governed in some capacity in society. So the word was useful to the church in speaking of order. Ordinatio simply meant to the Romans that a person was incorporated into that order, into that ordo. It is the word ordinatio from which is derived the word ordination. But the church now speaks of ordinatio in a reserved way, in a way which is reserved to speak about the sacrament of holy orders and the order of the priesthood. Now, she used it then to speak of a religious and a liturgical act which was a consecration, a setting apart, a blessing, a sacrament. But the church's use of ordinatio goes beyond what the Romans would have used it for. Because remember, the church is not only a human kind of society or structure, but she is divine. She is mystical. So it goes beyond a simple election or designation or delegation or institution by the community. In sacrament, in the sacrament of holy orders, there is a grace conferred. It confers a grace of the Holy Spirit that permits those priests or bishops, if they are ordained to the episcopacy, a sacred power which comes from Christ himself. It can come only from Christ through his church. So we speak of this order. So when we talk about the elders, Paul then is an apostle. The apostles originally, of course, are the twelve. Sometimes Christians tend to think that with the death of the last of the twelve apostles, 
there was some kind of completion or bringing an end to that work in the church, an end to Christ's commissioning. But Christ promised, he entrusted to his apostles the blessings of the new covenant and promised his guarantee, his spirit, and commanded them that these blessings be not only taught but realized, made present in the people of God until the end of time, until Christ comes again. Therefore, it would have to be so that the apostles would have to have successors. They themselves, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, figured this out in the early days of the church. St. Luke, in writing Acts of the Apostles, already uses the word that we call apostle, emissary, envoy, apostoloi, in reference to men other than the twelve apostles, the original twelve. Matthias becomes an apostle. He replaces Judas Iscariot. Paul is called an apostle in the New Testament. Barnabas is called an apostle. Timothy and Titus are successors to Paul. He himself reveals it. They were among the first bishops of the church, among the earliest bishops of the church. In fact, Timothy was the bishop of Ephesus and Titus the bishop of Crete. So they are then the successors to the apostles themselves. Now there is a tradition that is rooted in divine revelation itself that is carried forward to the present day, and it is this. Because of the mission entrusted to Christ's apostles and their successors, there is a serious obligation, duty placed upon them, to be faithful in transmitting the sacred deposit of our faith and to be watchful to guard not only the doctrines of our faith, but how they are taught and how their co-workers collaborate with them in their own fidelity. So the bishops then are, in a sense, fathers to their co-workers. Now through the laying on of hands, the apostles to the present day, the successors to the apostles, ordain priests who help them as co-workers. They carry on the work of the bishop. Priests, as I said, can exercise their ministry only in dependence upon the bishop and in perfect communion with him. The priests then represent the bishop, and they take upon themselves the duties of the bishop and also the bishop's solicitude for his people, his love for his people. In the rite of ordination, it's very beautiful, the priests must promise their obedience to the bishop. It's a very solemn promise. To break obedience with the bishop, to disobey one's bishop, is to disobey God himself. They promise their obedience to the bishop in that liturgy, and at the end of the liturgy, the bishop gives each of his priests, his newly ordained priests, a kiss of peace. And as the church explains to us of this, this beautiful part of the liturgy, that kiss of peace is symbolic. It is a sign that the bishop is calling these newly ordained men his co-workers in the vineyard of the Lord, his brothers, his sons. He calls them his sons, his friends, and they in turn owe him their love and their obedience. It's a similar kind of thing 
in the College of Apostles. Even though the Pope, Peter in the first case in the church, even though he is head of the College of Apostles, there is a way in which he is father to his brother bishops. He is a brother and co-worker with them, and yet they are in a certain sense his sons. For this reason, the father speaks lovingly to his sons, teaches his sons, exhorts his sons, guides his sons, reminds his sons. There is this tradition beginning in scripture itself, and we now encounter at the beginning of today's lesson, this instance where Paul gathers to himself his sons, his co-workers, the priests from throughout that area in Ephesus, and he exhorts them with these words. It's worth spending the time on this because it is a tradition that is deep and near and dear to the life of the church. Up to the present day, the Holy Father every year in Holy Week sends a letter just like this kind of discourse, just like the same letters Paul himself writes to Timothy and Titus, the pastoral letters. The Holy Father sends a pastoral letter to his co-workers in the Lord. That letter is made public, just as the Lord himself in divine providence makes these discourses public to us. Why? because it is also good for the people. It's edifying and enlightening for us to know what the shepherd is saying to his sons. The shepherd being the bishop, the shepherd being the pope, the shepherd being Jesus Christ. And so we have these pastoral letters. The bishops do the same thing in each of their dioceses because the bishop is a vicar of Christ in his own diocese. And so he too, annually writes a discourse, an exhortation to his, to his priests. And so, in this example, we look at what some of the chief characteristics of such an exhortation is. We've already said this idea that Paul is going to exhort these elders to be faithful as he himself has shown his fidelity. So what does he say? He says, you know, he's reminding them, you know what my way of life has been ever since the first day I set foot among you in Asia. He says, you know who I am. You know the example I have given you. You know the pattern I have provided to you. This is why he will say elsewhere, take me for your pattern, take me for your model, as I have taken Christ for my pattern, for my model. He says, we must model ourselves on the life of Christ. He says, you know how I have served the Lord in all humility. I have not hesitated to do anything at all that would be helpful to you. This sense that he has, as all apostles, as all priests must do, they must pour out their lives for God's people. And so we have this beautiful teaching this beautiful part of divine revelation whereby the order of the priesthood becomes slaves of God's people. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit 
sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing the shepherd's exhortation to his sons, and then she will move into the spirit tells the apostle he must suffer. And now, back to Dr. George. And so we have this beautiful teaching, this beautiful part of divine revelation, whereby the order of the priesthood becomes slaves of God's people. Why? Because they serve in imitation of Jesus Christ, who came in the form of a slave for us. So they make themselves slaves. They make themselves slaves to God's people, not just servants. Servant is one thing. In fact, the word servant is easier for us to grasp. But divine revelation is clear that these shepherds must become the slaves. They must lay down their lives. They go through life serving people, unappreciated oftentimes, being demanded upon to excess. People don't even know what they deal with. It's a beautiful part of the mystery of the priesthood and profound. The gift of the priesthood is a profound gift to all of humanity, a profound gift to the church. And we must never forget that without the priesthood, we do not have the sacrament of the Eucharist. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is essential to the celebration of the Eucharist. The Lord himself has designed it this way. As the church tells us, because the word and grace of which they are ministers are not their own, the word that they guard, the word that they proclaim, the grace that they minister to the people of God, these blessings and gifts are not their own, but are given to them by Christ for the sake of others, they must become freely the slaves of all. They are slaves to God, but their reward will be amazing in heaven. They are marked by Christ in a way special to holy orders. They are ontologically configured to Christ in body and soul. Their configuring is something unique to the priesthood, different from the configuration we have in the sacrament of baptism. So, Paul continues and he says, Now you will see me on my way to Jerusalem, to captivity, in captivity to the Spirit. He says, I have no idea what will happen to me there. Now he is already hinting at what we are about to discover in the very next chapter in question two of the lesson. Paul has already been made aware of this by the Holy Spirit. He says, I have no idea what will happen to me except that the Holy Spirit in town after town has made it clear to me that imprisonment and persecution await me there. He says, but I do not place value on my own life. He has already completely given his life over to the Lord. It does not matter to him if he lives or dies, but only that he served the Lord and whatever the Lord has in store for him. He says, all that matters is that I complete the mission the Lord Jesus gave me. And what is that mission? To bear witness to the good news of God's grace. He continues on a little later, reminding them, and we find some element of this be on guard in all of the pastoral discourses, really. This reminder to be careful, be watchful, be watchful of how you live, of what you teach, of how you handle God's people. He says, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you the guardians to feed the church of God, 
which he bought with the blood of his own son. We can't help but remember in the letters of Paul when he writes to Timothy, how he says, he reminds me, he says, you have in you a spiritual gift that was given when the prophet spoke and the elders laid their hands on you. And he says, do not neglect it. Attend to your duties. He says, be absorbed with them. And he says, be watchful. Watch yourself and watch your teaching. He is saying, watch your example. Be holy is what he exhorts Timothy to do. We must constantly, the priests in particular, must constantly strive to emulate the holiness of Christ. And so he says, be this way so that everyone can see your progress. We know that priests are human as we are. They're sinners as we are. They're weak. God wants them to grow in progress. This is edifying to the people of God. At the same time, we must never, we must never criticize priests. We cannot be their judges. We don't even know the cross that they carry. And every good priest pours out his life for the Lord. As St. Paul says, my life is being poured out as a libation. It is demanding on them in a way that we do not know or see in this life. So St. Paul goes on to tell them, watch yourself and watch your teaching. Persevere at both of these tasks. And in so doing, he says, you will bring to salvation yourself and those who hear you. So their own salvation is at stake. He says, I know quite well, he discourses to the elders in Ephesus, that when I am gone, fierce wolves will invade you and they will have no mercy on the flock. These words are true to the present day. In every age and every place, there are wolves that insinuate themselves among the people of God, false teachers, false prophets. Paul even says, even from your own ranks, they will come. There will be those in the ranks of the priesthood, priests themselves who are not faithful to the way of Christ. They are not faithful in their preaching the doctrines of salvation. They are not faithful to Christ in their example of holiness. And bishops, perhaps too. We cannot forget that among the twelve, one of the twelve was not faithful to Christ. In every age, there will be one. There will be several who are not faithful to Christ. Divine Revelation tells us this. From your own ranks, Paul then says, there will be men coming forward with a travesty of the truth on their lips to induce the disciples to follow them. And this is why he says, again, in his letter to Timothy, in these solemn words, he says, before God and before Jesus Christ, who is to be judge of the living and the dead, he says, I charge you in the name of his appearing and the name of his kingdom. Proclaim the message, welcome or unwelcome. Whether the message is welcome or unwelcome, whether you yourself are welcomed or unwelcomed by the people of God. He says, you must insist on it. This is your duty in Christ. He goes on to say, refute falsehood, correct error, give encouragement, but do all of these things with patience and with a care to instruct the people of God. So what they do, they most successfully do through their example of patience and gentleness. After Paul takes leave of the people, the elders in Ephesus, takes leave of Miletus, 
he aboards a ship and he begins his journey back to Jerusalem, hoping to be there in time for Pentecost. As St. Luke tells us, and St. Luke is traveling with him, they put in to the port at the city of Tyre in Syria, which would be north of where Paul wants to go. He wants to be in Palestine in Jerusalem. And because they had decided to unload the ship there, the ship ends up staying there for a whole week. It would have taken a long time to unload a ship. So while he is staying there, they immediately go and find disciples living in the city. You notice how whenever Luke says they go into a city, they're there, whether it's for a day or for a whole week, they always seek out the disciples and they stay with them. They spend their time with them. And this is what they do entire. So they stayed there a week and the disciples there, St. Luke says, speaking in the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is giving, is prophesying in them. They tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem because they know something bad is going to happen to him. And so St. Luke writes, speaking in the Spirit, they kept telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, but when our time was up, we set off anyway. Now Paul has already hinted that the Spirit himself has made clear to him that he is going to suffer in Jerusalem. And he has accepted, he's dealt with this, he already has surrendered himself to the Lord. The Lord now is simply preparing him, actually fortifying him. Think about this. The very fact that the Holy Spirit reveals this to him does not weaken Paul. It fortifies him. It gives him, it opens him up to the grace of strength and the courage that he needs. He is so much aware of this. This is why he writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, he is speaking of the hardships that he and the disciples underwent in Asia. And he said, in the hardships we underwent in Asia, we were carrying the death sentence in ourselves so that we should not be forced to trust in ourselves. They were aware they had suffering, that they carried death within themselves. He said, so that we should be forced not to trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In other words, because they were aware of their weakness and the fact that they would suffer, they didn't look to themselves for strength. They didn't look to themselves to keep going and to have courage. They were compelled to look to God for strength and beyond strength for life itself. After they leave Tyre, they then go down to Caesarea. They put in at Caesarea, they go to the house of Philip. This is Philip, one of the seven deacons. Philip, as St. Luke tells us, had four unmarried daughters, and all four of them were prophets. There is this abundance of charisms in the early church. St. Paul speaks of this in his letter to the Corinthians. The church in Corinth was filled with people who themselves were filled with the charisms of the Holy Spirit, which is one of the reasons Paul had to write them and to explain the correct order in terms of charity in exercising these charisms and that they always must be at the service of the unity of the church and building up the body of Christ. So there are many charisms. So while he is staying with Philip, along comes Agabus, who himself is a prophet. He comes from Judea. And in this scene, Agabus does something not unlike some of the scenes that we see in the prophets, particularly the prophet Ezekiel, where the Holy Spirit prompts and instructs the prophet to perform a little object lesson or a mime in the presence of people, a little story, so to speak, 
whose actions are symbolic of or significant of what is about to take place. It's action in the form of prophecy. And once the prophet has carried out the action, he will usually speak a sentence or two attributing to that sign, that mime, its meaning. And this is what happens in this case. Agabus walks up to Paul and he takes Paul's belt and ties himself up. He ties up his own hands and feet. And he then declares, this is what the Holy Spirit says. The man to whom this belt belongs will be tied up like this, as he is, in Jerusalem and handed over to the Gentiles. Now the people are distraught. They love Paul. They don't want harm to come to him. They want him to be able to continue his work. And St. Luke writes, when we heard this, we and all the local people urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. This is not unlike that moment when Peter stands in the way, steps in the pathway, so to speak, of Christ, after Christ has just prophesied his own passion. And Peter steps in front of him and he says, May you be spared, Lord. May this not happen to you. Now Jesus has just revealed the will of the Father. And what is Peter's response? May the Father's will not happen to you is what he is essentially saying, although in his ignorance he doesn't realize at first that he is saying this. His words in scripture are, Heaven preserve you, Lord. May you be spared, Master. This must not happen to you, Peter says to the Lord. God forbid that anything like this happen to you. And what does Jesus say? He turns around and says, Get behind me, you Satan. Now by calling him Satan, it's true that we use that word as a proper noun or a name for Lucifer, for the devil. But it also can be used as a common noun. The word Satan means one who throws himself across the path of another. One who obstructs the way. This is the adversary. So when Jesus calls him, you Satan, he is saying, you who are throwing yourself across my way, across the will of the Father. Jesus, in fact, says, you are trying to make me trip up and fall. That's why he is calling him the Satan. He says, you are thinking as humans think, not as God thinks. Well, it's a similar thing here. Peter is acting human. He is acting out of his love and devotion for the Lord, but he is acting with not yet complete knowledge of the mysteries of Christ. And this is what is happening with Paul when they begin weeping and begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul replies, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart like this? This is a beautiful teaching moment. He says, for my part, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the name. And hearing this then, they back off. They begin to be enlightened, no doubt, as Peter received that grace of enlightenment. St. Luke writes, we gave up the attempt saying, the Lord's will be done. And so they accept. They begin to see that in this mystery, and this is true in a particular way for the priests of the Lord, it's true for everyone who shares in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We share in the common priesthood of Christ. This means that we share in the Paschal mystery. To each of us is dealt a portion of the Paschal mystery of Christ, our own personal portion and lot 
it's precious in the eyes of the Lord. He himself says this, the death of my faithful ones is precious in the eyes of the Lord. This is why St. Paul at the end of his life, before he dies, he writes in his letter to Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. He says, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So this is what is important. Paul, what matters to him simply is that he embrace that share and embrace it fully. He understands that it is precisely in this that he by his life and by his suffering and death will most glorify the Lord and fulfill God's will and purpose in him. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will cover Paul in Jerusalem. And now, back to Dr. George. So now, Paul arrives with the others in Jerusalem, and he meets up with James, and he begins sharing with the Jews all the marvels that God had been working through Paul and the other disciples in the area of Asia and beyond. And they're thrilled with this, as St. Luke says, that they gave glory to God when they heard about all of these amazing things. But there's still this residue of a problem remaining in spite of years past having been resolved at the Council of Jerusalem. There is this, this discontent over the matter of the Jews and the Mosaic Law and the Gentiles who have no obligation to practice any of the obligations of the Mosaic Law. It must have been difficult, even for devout Jews who were converts, even the good Jews who were converts, to be able to embrace and understand this that God was doing in the new covenant of his son. It was difficult. And these devout Jews, in speaking to Paul, one of whom is James, the bishop of the church in Jerusalem, proceed to explain to him, there are people who are having a lot of difficulty with this matter of the Gentiles coming into the church. There are Jews who are upset and who are saying that you are preaching against the Mosaic Law. You are trying to stand against it among the Jewish people. You see, brother, how thousands of Jews have now become believers. This they are rejoicing in, and they are all staunch upholders of the law. What they have heard about you is that you instruct Jews living among the Gentiles to break away from Moses. It's not necessarily that they themselves are upset with Paul, but they are trying to be prudent. They're trying to prepare him for the fact that he has come into a city where he has a lot of enemies, a lot of people who hate him and who have been convinced he is doing something terrible. They go on to say, the people say that you are authorizing Jews not to circumcise their children or to follow the customary practices. What is to be done? Now, they happen to be aware of a group of men who are about to take what is called a Nazarite vow. People then could take private vows. People can do this kind of thing to this day, where for a period of time, one sets oneself apart and devotes oneself in a special way to the Lord. So with this, it was a time of, of fasting, of prayer. The men shaved their heads 
So there was sort of a public announcement to the priests that they were beginning this period of vow. They would indicate the period of time that the vow would take. And during that time then, they would not touch the hair on their head. They would not shave their heads or anything like this. They had certain purification rites. And at the end, they had the completion ritual and all of these things. It was kind of an expensive series of rites. And they say to Paul, here is a perfect opportunity. Why don't you join with them, pay the expenses of this vow, of the rites, and join with them in completing the vow? Now, it's completely legitimate for Paul to do this. It's a moment when Paul fulfills his own word. We hear of this in a later letter where he says, to the Jews I became a Jew so that I may win some of the Jews. To those under the law, I place myself under the law, though I am not under the law, the Mosaic law, in order to win those who still lived according to that law. So Paul goes ahead and does this. The, the time of the vow is coming to completion. The seven days were nearly over, St. Luke tells us, when some Jews from Asia caught sight of him. Now, there are some Jews who have come all the way from Asia into the city, probably on pilgrimage for Pentecost. And they are angry about this. There is something we see over and over again in Acts of the Apostles about an anger, a malice, a mean-spiritedness that people sometimes harbor in their hearts and do not allow God to enlighten that, to heal that, to transform that they cling to, they become so accustomed to the malice or the discontent that it becomes comfortable to them. It becomes righteous to them. And what happens is that they close themselves off to peace and to healing and to enlightenment. That's why we have these moments, any number of them in Acts of the Apostles, where the crowds themselves become chaotic. They're confused. St. Luke will even say the crowds themselves didn't even know what the matter was about anymore because it's not, this is not something that has to do with knowledge and understanding. It's just something that has to do with rioting and with madness and with people wanting to have their own way. So here come these Jews from Asia. They caught sight of him in the temple and they immediately do what? They stir up the crowd against him and they begin talking. They stir up the whole city. They go so far as to say that they had seen Paul with Trophimus in the city streets, and they believed he had taken him into the temple. Now, this would have been to break the law. Paul would not have broken the law. The law was that Gentiles could only go so far as the Gentile court of the temple area. They could not go beyond that, and there were very strict laws against that. And somebody starts the story that because they had seen Paul with Trophimus, that probably he had Trophimus with him in the temple area. It's not true. Just as with Stephen's martyrdom, just as with Christ's passion, there are people willing to step forward with all sorts of conjecture, with lies, with distortions, spreading things that are completely baseless. There's no foundation. Same thing is happening with Paul now. They say to the people of Israel, this is the man who preaches everywhere against our people, against the law and against this place. He has even profaned the holy place by bringing Greeks into the temple. And of course, they rouse the whole city with such a rage that they gather with the intent of killing Paul. 
Paul would have been killed if, ironically, the Roman soldiers did not come along and protect him. St. Luke says that they dragged him out of the temple while they were setting about killing him. That's their intent. They intended to kill Paul then and there on the spot. They intended to kill him and word reached the tribune of the cohort. Now, there was a Roman garrison not far from the court of the Gentiles, just up a couple flights of stairs in the Antonia fortress. There was a garrison, there were soldiers there. And so evidently, word reaches them. Someone brings them forward. And it says that the soldiers stopped the beating. When they enter, they stopped the beating. But they take Paul into custody because right away they're thinking, he must be a rebel. He's a maverick. He's a troublemaker. He's an assassin. This is part of the problem when he's questioned later by the Tribune when he asks if Paul was the Egyptian who had these 400 assassins with him. There was something that occurred close to this historically where there was a rebel who gathered a group to himself and ended up going out into the desert. St. Luke calls him here the 4,000 cutthroats. They would have been like terrorists. It's like what we would equate with the modern day terrorists. At any rate, the soldiers immediately take Paul into custody, into arrest. The people, still so angry, follow him and try, they try, they sort of are almost attacking the soldiers, trying to get Paul from them so that they can kill Paul on the spot. They don't care about his being tried. They don't care, they don't even want him to be arrested. They want to simply end his life on the spot. So he's taken away. Paul asks to speak to the tribune. And he says, you speak Greek then. And this is when he indicates, we thought that you were that rebel from Egypt. Paul speaks Greek. Indeed, he is fluent. He is eloquent in Greek. But he is about to go one better than this. He asks the tribune if he can speak to the crowd. The tribune is assuming he is going to speak to them in Greek. He first establishes, can he speak Greek? He wants to know if he can speak to him himself, the tribune. Will I be able to speak to him? And he says, let me speak to them. He gives him permission. So he explains that he is a Jew. He explains to the tribune he's a Jew. He is misunderstood. He is a citizen of Tarsus. May he speak to the people first. The tribune gives him permission. Paul raises his hand, and St. Luke says a profound silence comes over the crowd. He begins speaking, and what does he say? My brothers, my fathers. He even uses the word fathers. He is acknowledging the fact there would have been members of the Sanhedrin, elders of the Jewish community in this. No doubt there were people who knew Paul, Saul, even in that group, despite the fact that this is 20 years after Paul has been working with the Sanhedrin. And he asked them to listen to what he has to say. St. Luke says when they realized he was speaking Hebrew, the silence grew even greater. It was even more profound. For Paul to speak Aramaic or Hebrew, there were Jewish proselytes who could not speak Aramaic, who did not know the language of the Jewish people, who were not fluent in that language. Paul begins speaking in Hebrew. Imagine how it struck them. He's one of them just by the language he speaks. He is profoundly indicating. He is one of them. He is of the tradition of the people. He is a son of Abraham. So he goes on to explain, and this explanation, as well as the subsequent 
apologies or apologias that we're going to hear from Paul in Acts of the Apostles, they're not simply a proclamation of the doctrines of salvation. He is very wise in what he does. What he does is gives personal testimony. Personal testimony is a profound way of speaking to people at a personal level whereby people hear the sincerity and they hear that it is a personal story, that what they are telling them has everything to do with that person's way of thinking and their way of life. They approach them at a personal level. There is something about personal witness that is always very compelling and very convincing simply because the spirit of the person is speaking from their own actions, from their own history. So he walks through what happened to him and how, years back, he says, I was as zealous for the law as many of you are today. This is why you're acting this way. He says, I used to be the same. In fact, I even killed people in battling the same fight that you are fighting. And he walks through the whole events of his conversion and St. Luke says that they are listening intently to him. But when he gets to the part where he says, the Lord himself spoke to me, the Lord himself revealed himself to me and said this, and what is it he says? Leave Jerusalem, the Lord tells Paul, leave Jerusalem because they will not accept the testimony you are giving about me. And a few verses later he says, go, the Lord is telling Paul, I am sending you, because the Jews have rejected you, I am sending you to the Gentiles far away. To the Gentiles. The Jews understood that they were the recipients of divine revelation. The Lord God is speaking to Paul and saying, number one, the people, my chosen people, they will not receive my word. They are too hard-hearted. Their minds are too closed. They will not receive it. So you should leave Jerusalem and he says, and now I am going to send you to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, for the Jews, were like barbarians. They were like pigs. It's like he is being sent by God himself to give divine revelation to the Gentiles. St. Luke says, up to this point they had been listening to him, but at these words they begin to shout, rid the earth of this man, he is not fit to live. Their furor simply takes over. They were yelling and waving their cloaks and throwing dust in the air. And so the tribune brings him into the fortress. And he orders him to be examined under the lash. To be examined under the Roman lash was a horrible thing. People died under that examination. People basically, the examination was so fierce that people many times ended up just telling the soldiers whatever it was they wanted to hear just to put an end to the terror of being examined under the lash. Paul is a Roman citizen. He hasn't mentioned it before now, but once they strap him down, and they have him, as St. Luke says, in heavy chains, there would have been a way of binding a man simply to secure him, to prevent him from going free. But heavy chains was usually indicative of bruising kinds of chains. The chains itself were part of the suffering. So they strap him down, with the intention of examining him under the lash. And Paul simply says, is it legal to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and who has not yet been brought to trial? The guard is shaken by this, and rightfully so. 
it was a very serious infraction of the law to hurt or to kill a Roman citizen without bringing him to trial, without establishing in any way whatsoever his guilt. He leaves immediately and goes to the tribune and says, do you realize what you're doing? This man is a Roman citizen. The tribute comes forward. He goes into the room and he says, are you a Roman citizen? To which Paul simply says, yes. His answer is very simple. And he says, it cost me a large sum of money to get my Roman citizenship. And Paul says, but I was born to it. He is now, the tribune is deeply shaken. He and the others leave. They're already in trouble for what they have done and for how they have treated this man. What is beautiful about this, it reminds us of what happens in the case of Stephen and what happens in the Passion of Our Lord. Those who are suffering and dying for the sake of the Lord's name do so because they understand that it is God's will. They understand that it is now that they are given the opportunity to proclaim the word of God. That's why Jesus, before he enters his passion and speaking to his apostles, he tells them, you are going to be seized and persecuted. You're going to be imprisoned. You will be brought before kings and governors. Before my sake, you will be dragged into synagogues. And he says, and when this happens to you, that will be your opportunity to proclaim my name. That will be your opportunity to bear witness to the message. So God places his servants in precisely that, that situation because the message can be proclaimed in a way it is not ordinarily proclaimed in other ordinary circumstances. And the Lord says, I myself shall give you, because he gives them his spirit, an eloquence and a wisdom which your opponents will not be able to resist or contradict. And in scripture, when we read that word resist, it can be taken two ways. He says, they will not be able to resist you or contradict it, to deny the truth that you bear witness to. But it also means that your opponents themselves will find it irresistible. There is something compelling about the witness of martyrs. There is something compelling in the face of, in the presence of someone who in strength of spirit, in equanimity of soul, endures whatever God allows to happen to them, all in the name of truth. That cannot be gainsaid. It cannot be contradicted. The world doesn't know what to do with witness like that. And this is why St. Paul will say, he says it in his letters, he says, I come among you. I mean, ultimately, this is what the shepherd does. He comes among God's people, not with brilliance of oratory or with wise argument. He says, I was resolved that when I came among you, that it would be with the knowledge of Jesus and him as the crucified Lord. That is what he proclaims in word and also through his example. When he says that he is born to this, we remember what Jesus says when he is standing before Pilate. There's something deep and mysterious in those words. Paul, of course, is speaking of his Roman citizenship. But remember what Jesus says to Pilate when he questions him. He says, I was born for this. I came into the world for this. What is that? This? To bear witness to the truth. In a sense, Paul himself realizes that because of his Roman citizenship that he was born into, this will be his opportunity to bear witness to the truth. He was born precisely for this. The place God put him in 
what he called him to do was for this reason. It's like the example of St. Joan of Arc when they ask her if she's afraid because she could lose her life if her judges decide that they're going to condemn her as guilty. And they ask her if she's afraid and she says, I am not afraid. I was born to do this. She says this to the Inquisition. I was born to do this. And so there is something profound in this where the person is Paul and he understands that through being a Jew, he is rejected by his very own people and taken into custody by the Romans who have no right to treat him the way that they do. But it is precisely through this that God is going to proclaim his word through their persecution, their maltreatment of him, their imprisonment. God's taking him now to Rome where he will bear witness to him. And it is precisely here and now that he most eloquently will proclaim the gospel in his person. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George will be covering chapter 22, verse 30, through chapter 24, which include the following three topics. Paul's words shed light on the actions of the Jews. Second, God is in charge of Paul's being delivered to Rome. And third, Paul's case is heard by the Roman procurator. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Music